Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. Today's topic is play. So when you think about play, what kinds of behaviors do you think about that fit under that category, play? Uh, I think it's really important to think about play in different ways. There's types of play that mostly involve consuming Mm -hmm. things. And then there's like an imaginative, interactive, and engaging type of play where you like create situations for yourself, create universes. As in, especially as a kid, there's a type of play where you are imaginative. And to me, that's like a huge difference from the kind of passive play that I think is getting more common. And it's easier too. like having a child sit in front of the TV or a computer is admittedly less demanding than having a kid that's creating a universe and like exploring that universe and like engaging different parts of their environment. Yeah, I guess for me, I, I, if you look at the child development literature, it all says that play is really useful in increasing social competence and emotional maturity and, you know, relational acumen. And for me, it just seems like that continues across the course of your lifetimes. So the skills that you get playing as a young person translate into similar kinds of skill sets that you continue to perfect as you get older. And and you play with people in different ways based on social cues and communication contexts and intimacy with other people in a way that helps create healthy relationships. So I think play is super important. And especially because I do gender work, I see relationships that are failing all the time and people want to talk about them to me all the time. And they often lack play. They lack play at the most mundane level <laughs> to the most profound level. Like the play has left the, that kind of spark and joy. And even if it's silly, you know, cause I think not all play is silly, but I think play has left relationships that are, that are ending that people want out of there. How do you think adults, when you see adults playing well, or if you're an adult playing, what does that look like to be good at play as an adult person? I mean, I think conversation is the biggest cue to me. How does this person like to talk? Is it banter? Are they more like, let's just cover the standard bases? Do they want to just immediately get into talking about something that's kind of unusual? Or are they just wanting to know about your career and what Mm -hmm. you do? And or the is are they trying to network or are they trying to like just have fun and relax and let go and enjoy you and enjoy you yeah and connect. Um, there's a big difference to me, and I think also I think there's a big difference between leisure and play. Like I have this idea in my mind of uh, vegging out. Uh, watching Netflix and that can be engaging in some sense but does not play Mm -mm. no and I think for adults there's there's physical play and then there's verbal play and then there 
skill sets that build emotional, relational dimensions of the relationship that are playful, that aren't quite totally physical, physical and aren't quite totally verbal, but that are clearly emotional play. Mm-hmm. So do you think, for me, I think play is about pushing boundaries and seeing where boundaries are. Yeah. Seeing if they're permeable or if they're calcified. And I think play is very much about testing boundaries. And that seems to be very positive for emotional growth and for for people to relate well together over time. What do you think about that? I definitely agree. And I I mean, that's why play to me involves a lot of imagination. Um, And especially if you're playing with other adults, it involves some kind of like recklessness or like lack of inhibition yeah lack of inhibition (laughs) you just have to part of the definition of play is like let's explore the situation like let's do this thing and see where it takes us whether that thing is just like a strange conversational turn or whether it's like you decide that on your first date you're gonna do something crazy like go to disney world or something um to me the purpose of play is like uh, to find growth, you know, to like explore something and see where where it takes you. If that's the case, then it seems like play and vulnerability go hand in hand. One thing, one reason I think why kids play more than adults, at least in an obvious way, is that they're not as self-aware. You know, they're not as aware, and they, honestly, they are okay living in an imagined imaginary world it's not ridiculous to spend time in an imaginary world because who cares you know like no no one cares and I think as an adult it's embarrassing you know that you're living a lie and you are not being honest with yourself when you live in an imaginary world even though like it could be really productive and useful and sometimes it's you know fun I mean, you know, I, as you were saying that last bit, I was thinking about to one of the earlier, the earliest comments that you just made, and that was about the relationship between work and play. Because when I think about play and imaginary worlds, I think about men and the tremendous amount of leisure time that they have as a result of their privilege in a culture that exclusively <laughs> promotes their values and interests. I mean, I can't go to the bar without seeing all men yelling at me on the TV, whether it's sports or whether it's politics. It's all men talk all the time. It's all male music. It's all man play constantly, which I find exhausting as somebody who likes to be out in the world in public. And so when I think about play and I think about that kind of imagination, I think it's I think it's almost exclusively built for adult men, and especially around their leisure time and their money. So, you know, I meet adult men all the time who are into cosplay or they're into, you know, virtual reality or video gaming or whatever. And that all just seems so intensely scaled to masculinity and to class. And I mean, so many of them have wives who do all of the domestic labor to keep them alive so that they have free time to pursue you know, these alternative realities. And that's why they like sci-fi and that's why they like fantasy. And even though women participate in those, and, and some of them to a very large degree, you know, I feel like there's a, a model of consumption and production around that kind of leisure time mm-hmm. that is scaled towards male play. And I find that super hostile. So 
I, I think for me, I'm almost, I'm not unwilling to, but I'm extremely tentative about engaging in leisure activities that can open up to play around those kinds of spheres because they just seem yeah. so brutally masculine. Even if it's not about violence, they just seem so heavily patrolled by masculinity that I just don't think that that's a good space for me to play. And so I often like don't even engage in those places. I mean, I think it's a weak form of play. It's like spectator yes, play. Totally. It's not exactly, I mean. It doesn't engage my brain the same. Right. It's the same as watching yeah. Netflix. I mean, I think there's a distinct difference between leisure and play. And I understand that like participating in a science fiction fantasy environment, even if you're, uh, you know, gaming, can be a form of play, especially if you involve people that are in your real life, you know? I think that can definitely be play, but honestly, those experiences are so curated and it's a really passive uh, activity. And I think that's not what actual playing can be. I agree with that. So what do you think about the difference between um, leisure and play? Like, where do you think play is most important? I think play takes place often within leisure time. Leisure is, is a is a structure. And it's it's structured by the the economy and the way in which labor is stratified. So people who have the highest, you know, amount of social power also have the highest amount of leisure time historically anyhow. Um and so that's I think that's hyper structured by capitalism where play is a mode I think, of engaging with other people in the world. And so I don't think that they're analogous, but I do think they go together. So I think, especially for women who don't have the luxury of leisure time because mm -hmm. they're working and doing the second shift at home, doing child rearing and housework and working the wage job, I think that it's very difficult for them to get leisure time. So they don't have as many hobbies and the hobbies aren't as expensive and they don't take as much time and it's always been that way you know, under industrial capitalism. But I think that women are much better at play interpersonally because they use it as a survival strategy and as a way to connect to other women in a hyper, hyper patriarchal culture. And so they use play as a way of relating to one another and with men to kind of t take away some of the pain of being alive in a place where they are so mm. thoroughly um, undervalued. I remember being uh, playing high school basketball, which is a game in itself, but I would create little games out of the drills that we were doing, just like the repetitive, ridiculous drills. And I remember my coach being like, you're not, you're not taking this seriously. He asked me directly if I thought basketball was a game. And I was like, do you, yep. I mean, sure yes. Do. Sure <laughs> do. I'm blessed my check. Basketball is in fact a game. Definitely it is. Um, but he just couldn't understand why like me and my other teammates would like create a fun situation out of a repetitive drill like that to him was subversive yes you were undermining his authority i mean i think play can be really subversive i think that's one of the reasons that i like it is because it break down it mm -hmm. breaks down hierarchies of power but i also like it because it's erotic so yeah, for course. me, people who are very good, especially at verbal play, at banter, 
at landing a punchline, at punning, at double entendre. People who have a high sensibility of how to use verbal acuity to create space to undermine power, that's like my wheelhouse. <laughs> I mean, completely in the center of my wheelhouse about how to wield rhetorical power that way, for sure. And to, and to, and to create games that actually find value in spaces that are not seemingly valuable, you know, as a way of, I don't know, keeping the mind involved in things where it's it's losing interest i i think i think that play is subversive for sure i think um there's like a danger in taking yourself too seriously and taking things too seriously when you're talking about play in respect to interacting with people people say that confidence you know is one of the most attractive things that you can have and i think that's mostly just being open to play not taking yourself too seriously like being open to criticism and being open to like yourself as a malleable person not taking your concept of yourself in the world and like your title and your role too seriously you can be an agent in any number of situations um and you can roll with it i mean in that way it seems like play is the opposite of narcissism even though they're both focused on the self, play is more about how the self connects with others in unique and surprising ways that create pleasure. And narcissism is entirely focused on the preservation of the self at all costs. Mm -hmm. You know, it's narcissism is all about rigidity, where play is all about fluidity. So it's that's sort of an interesting, you know, oppositional pull between those two, between play and, and narcissism, which I like. I like that idea that play is about undermining self-importance. Because I think confidence is important. Confidence comes from when people, you know, they excel in skill sets that can't be taken away from them, that, are, that become intrinsic to who they are because they've mastered a skill set. And I think play is actually a, a huge toolbox of skills, you know, that we learn how to master potentially over the course of our lifetime. And they include things like humor and touching and laughter and joking and imagination and storytelling and mm -hmm. you know I think that there are a lot of tools in that toolbox of play mm -hmm. and it's just like a good way to try out yourself mm -hmm. like you can't I mean I was saying you can't take yourself too seriously and like that's really important for playing but allowing yourself to play and not taking yourself too seriously is like actually how you figure out who you are so if you're just like l trying to be serious and like follow these particular scripts and like not embarrass yourself in front of other people and like have a rigid notion of who you are, then you don't have the opportunity to even explore yourself and what it is that you want and what it is that you're about and your desires and how that plays out. What do you, I mean, do you think there's a relationship between play and failure and? Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah. Jack Halberstam writes about that in The Queer Art of Failure. I love that book, I think. I teach it a lot, and I I love that book because it looks at how failure is sort of um, a constant theme in, I don't know, lowbrow art. You know, whether it's children's movies or, you know, bro-dude comedies. 
And I think failure is a huge part of play. I think in order to enjoy play, you have to be willing to fail. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to not land a joke or screw up a punchline or, you know, or mangle <laughs> a story um, or lose people's attention or occasionally offend people because, you know, the words didn't come out right. I, I think that. I think people who play hard have a high degree of risk tolerance, which I also like because that's my predisposition towards the world is, you know, I'm interested in high risk, high yield interactions more than I'm interested in low risk, low yield relationships. Mm -hmm. So I like people who will walk the razor's edge about play and push Mm -hmm. the boundaries. I mean, politics is all about that. So the people that I'm interested in building political relationships with are good at play and don't take themselves too seriously and can laugh and can see where the games are even in the mundane and they can appreciate that people have personality talents and communication skills even if their politics don't line up. And the worst politicians to work with are the ones that take themselves too seriously and refuse to play mm-hmm. because they just become hypocrites. Right. Yeah. I mean, they just toe the party line, whatever it is, on whichever side and you know, and they're rigid and immovable and ideological. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's social death. It's just really ugly to watch. But on, on any side, and you know, it doesn't matter what their political affiliation is. The people who are interesting to me are the ones who can mm-hmm. be more flexible in their arrangements, their relational arrangements with other people, and they know how to play and they know mm-hmm. how, to, how to marshal that as a resource. I mean, I, I think it's a good way to feel things out too i mean I, that's a great political strategy is like feeling out how a certain way of talking about a policy issue works and how it like actually exists once it gets up, once you're actually talking about it and how people respond and i know um people sometimes talk to me about using comedy as a defense mechanism I will start joking about a subject that I actually want to talk about seriously, and I'll just like lay it out in a kind of funny mm-hmm. way and be like very casual about it. But really, I'm curious what people think. And so I've I've been told that, well, you're just like hiding what you really feel behind jokes. You know, you're not really like getting to the heart of what you're wanting to talk about, and you're just like making fun of everything that, that you think. That's a misread. No, I think, I think so, too. And I think it's important to be able to, like, feel things out with jokes if you can take a certain topic lightly. And, and I joke about things that I think I'm really serious about. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I use Twitter that way. Mm-hmm. I use humor and joking on Twitter, especially when I'm engaging in politics. I mean, I'm not... I'm not terribly shrill. I'm not trying to yell at, you know, politicians or politicos by name or anything like that. This is just taking it too seriously. But I, I do like engaging in humor, um, especially on social media. I mean, it can really fail, but it can also totally succeed, especially because there are so many people who do take themselves so seriously. And there are ways, I think, to point to that as a as a character flaw, you know, Mm. using humor in a way that's quite instructive, whether it's about the policy itself or the politico themselves. I think that there's utility in that kind of play. 
I mean, and I think as long as writing has been around, comedy has been used as commentary. And some of like the best social criticisms to me are like satire. I think being able to take something and comment on it in a funny way is like being able to like it's a giving you another perspective you can like step back and see it as separated from you as a person from your own like specific worldview and you get an idea for like how much you perceive things based on scripts that you're sold there's a bigger picture and comedy is really good at pointing out like the other perspectives you know that you you realize that you've been like seeing things from this like one specific standpoint Mm -hmm. and comedy is about like pushing you out of that standpoint and like making you aware that there's other people's perspectives yeah and i i also think you know when i think about intimate relationships and play and thinking about physical play um, recently, I've had a, a couple of male friends who are thinking about getting divorced, and you know they describe their marriages to me, and you know is this a, you know, is this normal? And I ask them, you know, do you still chase your wife around and play grab ass in the kitchen? You know, are you copping a feel and stealing a kiss and poking each other and chasing each other around the house and? joking while you do mundane stuff housework or yard work like is that happening and if the answer is no then I think that that's a you know an indication that something is amiss because I think it's the it's not just verbal play and humor Mm. that help to create intimacy um, whether that's intimacy and friendship or in intimate relationships but it's also physical play and I think it's very interesting to watch heterosexual couples in public in the south because it's so much more the physical play is so much more repressed whether it's in the bar or at the park or at a festival or whatever being a yankee in exile <laughs> gives me a sort of different yeah. perspective especially living on the coast um because people play so much less frequently in public i don't know what's happening at home but you know they don't they don't use physical less play. play. Yeah, there's less play. I mean, there's so much discomfort, I think, in that people feel um, expressing themselves publicly. Like, there's a certain, like, decorum that you're supposed to maintain in public. And I, um, that was one of the biggest problems I've had working in corporate environments. I've worked in a couple of them, and I just, like, I'm, I had people tell me that I wasn't acting appropriately sometimes if I was just talking about you know like myself or you know I was told that it wasn't appropriate for me to mention my abortion even if it like was relevant in the conversation and I wanted to add a personal perspective to a serious conversation that me and my coworkers have it's just like they were like and it's not appropriate for you to reveal parts of yourself and when I wouldn't take things seriously, I would get, like, you know. <laughs> reprimanded? Yes. Yeah, well, not reprimanded. You know, just, like, disapproving looks. Like, why aren't you taking... This is really is- serious! <laughs> this is so serious! What matters to just, like, a small... Just the smallest, tiniest set of humans. Um, <laughs> why aren't you taking it seriously? 
I wonder though if you think um, there are places where play isn't appropriate. No. <laughs> uh, you know, when you started selfies from below, I think I sent you a bunch <laughs> of links to that funeral selfies. Oh yeah. And because I was like, here is, I mean, that how long ago? So that was probably a year and a half ago yeah, that I started that sending was. you those funeral selfies. Because I was like, here is play that's happening. Like, play as a part of the grief process and as a part of moving on and as a part of managing the awkwardness that comes at the end of life and family and managing awkward family feuds at funerals. I mean, for me, those selfies are are complete evidence that there are no places that that play does not help people with Mm -hmm. being alive and struggling with both life and death. So, no, I don't think that there are any places. I mean, yeah, part of the point of Selfies Below in the first place was to allow people to, like, see that selfies don't have to be a serious space, you know, where you have to, like, curate your your appearance, yeah, Mm -hmm. and, like, appeal to a certain, like, standard of beauty and you can allow a selfie that isn't like doesn't have the right lighting and doesn't have the right angle and like you have a double chin you can allow that to surface because i mean that's part of like letting people see who you are and like sharing and being an open person and i think there's something sort of dishonest about a normal selfie in a lot of cases where where you just took 15 pictures of yourself in all these different ways and prepped for the picture, had the light, like the right background. And I've definitely been with people taking a selfie where I've seen them, you know, we've taken a pic together and I thought it was great. And they'll look at it and be like, oh, like delete that. (laughs) And it's just like a fun way to Okay, so I'm one of those people. (laughs) I'm one of those, I hate, I hate (laughs) taking my picture and putting it on the internet for a thousand reasons, but... This weekend, there was a big party here in Fayetteville called the Block Street Party, and I had been talking on Facebook about the mayor, who's a good friend of mine, and I ran into uh, Mayor Jordan at the party, and I said, I had just been talking about you online, I tagged you on Facebook, and I was like, I have to get a picture, (laughs) so that everybody knows I've addressed these issues with you, and we took this picture, and it, whatever, it was fine. But I hate putting them up, on, them up online, not because I'm worried about beauty or how I look, but I feel like they flatten all of my dynamism into a two-dimensional right. image that stands in for a moment that I shared with somebody. And I hate that. I, like, I, I'm just, I feel like it's, I almost feel Amish about it, like the camera's stealing my soul. <laughs> you know? I yeah. feel like... It reduces the complexity of an interaction, especially when I'm having a good time, to this two-dimensional idea of what right. happened. So even though I wanted to preserve that moment, and it was going to be, it was a punchline for a conversation I had just been having earlier in the day in a different space, and so I ultimately ended up putting it up on Facebook. I just, I just totally object to being flattened. But I think the, yeah, way. the way that you take it is differently, and like, there's definitely a concern between how you are like perceiving what your picture is about and what other people think and having other people take it really seriously. Because to me, like pictures now on the internet, like with Pinterest and Instagram are all about branding. And it's like one of the biggest ways there's something like you get 60% more traffic to a link if you have a picture with it. And now pictures are like, a very serious way to manipulate people into like 
having a very particular perception of you. And I, I mean, selfies yeah. below from below is like a play on that. You are putting pictures online to like control your image of yourself, you know, and have sell a certain like idea, myth, a myth of a yourself, myth of yourself. Uh-huh. and really you should be like playing with your idea of yourself online and like experimenting online is a great place to experiment with your idea of yourself so instead of like putting all these pictures for your perfect life and like all of the good things that happen to you and like yourself from the best angle with your eyes with the perfect eyeshadow and like the perfect lighting instead of presenting that part of yourself online why don't you present the moments before you like fucked up and were silly and like we're just like trying something out for the first time and like maybe you like were laughing too hard and farted and like put that online too i think it's the internet is like such a space of opportunity and it's like been compromised by like you have to have the perfect instagram blog and make sure your like brand is curated and there's like this whole like self-branding thing and i i know as a comedian on twitter like trying to get a serious job it's hard like a lot of what i and i do serious stuff on twitter too and i like comment on things that i think are important and i'll say serious stuff um, but then all the people who follow me because I'm a local comedian are like, you haven't told a joke on Twitter in a while. And then they're unhappy. And then I know a lot of times I think about blocking my Twitter, making it private when yeah. I'm looking for a job, because I think, you know, I worry that employers won't respond well to the fact that I like play out, I try out jokes online and I like just kind of sometimes am experimenting with ideas and like humor and things like that and that means that I can't be professional when yeah no yeah you're not dead <laughs> they want you to be dead they want you to have no real I don't know personality or I, they want you to conform I mean you know but part of what you're saying is also about audience is who is the audience for your play? Because there is some play that's consumatory and that we do because we have to get it out of our bodies. And there's some play that is about building specific connections with certain people. But for me, I think about the difference between platforms like Facebook and Twitter for me is that I'm managing a bunch of different audiences. I'm managing the academics, you know, that I work with who have only just really, I've only allowed them on my Facebook page in the last probably seven or eight months. They've not been part of any kind of I have been sort of refusing to brand myself in the academy. And so them and then, you know, people who are interested in Arkansas politics, which I teach about and think about a lot, and then people who are my peers that I play with, (laughs) you know. So you and I play online all the time about music lyrics and, you know, film gifts. And, you know, we play all the time online. But then they're like, you know, octogenarian politicos who are also reading my Facebook page and watching that play. So for me, I feel like it's sort of an experiment throwing all of these different audiences in my family, mm-hmm. you know, and I just leave it all open there. I don't have them separated out. Mm-hmm. I don't even have Twitter separated out and, you know, lists because I'm just like, let's just throw it all together and see how it works and see how these ideas play with different audiences. And so for me, especially as a communicator... I'm super interested in what happens when play transcends an intended audience Mm -hmm. and finds its way into unintended audiences. It's completely weird to think about having an audience because I'm like then thinking about I'm a big theater fan and I go to see all the local theater here Um, and I'm thinking about like how structured 
it is to be on stage and like perform when you're actually in a play (laughs) and how there's actually an audience for everything that you're doing in your real life too and how you are putting on a performance in a lot of ways if you let yourself be unstructured and improvise and how how much like more you can engage the audience rather than like you know like in a typical play the audience just is not engaged at all that's right and i saw a a play recently that feigned audience interaction but they were like had planted people in the audience so that things could be like structured in this very particular way and I like I loved the play and I thought it was great and I thought that the audience interaction was real and I was like disappointed when I found out later that they had planned it all out because I was there's something to me about gaming and plays that are really disappointing and I think it's that they don't push the boundaries of audience and actor and or like if you're gaming they don't really push the boundaries of what you are capable of doing so to me you have an opportunity with an audience to like engage them and have them play back and that to me is like a huge opportunity and something that to me I wish happened more in play and that's why I love improv and yes part of why I got into comedy like I was doing theater in high school and there was something like alien about theater to me and something dishonest about it and that I didn't connect with but getting into comedy requires like to do comedy requires like engaging with your audience and like failing when you tell a joke that they don't connect with yeah my mom tried to get me to join the theater program in high school too and I'm like mom those are my people and I didn't really have the words for it but I found my way into forensics when I was in ninth grade when I just started high school and then became a debater in high school and then obviously through college and I like debate because it's all improv all the time and it's so many hours and so intense and everybody around you is improving, and they're improving performance, and they're improving with a live audience, and they're improving massive amounts of political information, which I'm obviously down with. I mean, everything about debate is about improv, and you have a partner that you're improving with, mm-hmm. and humor is a huge part of it. And it was just so much more dynamic to me than theater was ever going to be. I did, I never even entertained. Theater. I was like, this is just not for me because it lacked the dynamism. And I think that's why I love teaching and that's certainly why I love public speaking. I mean, I will go give a lecture pretty much anywhere because I love to interact with new people as audiences. Um, I, I just, mm-hmm. there's something about that unknown quantity. I mean, I'm high risk, high yield. Right. <laughs> you know, high risk, like, high yield. Yeah. Likewise. And I think uh, even like having a one person audience and being yeah. able to like improv with a single person, you know, and like respond to them and that's to me is like the best the best form of play is improving with one person although that sort of begets a question about play and privilege because I think for both of us as white women there are way more public places that we can play in and even be safer than if we were you know women of color or queer women of color in public or poor women you know I mean I, I think although in this case you know, play and leisure are not equivalent. I do think that that especially if we're thinking about what people can say and what they can say in public to audiences, that the race, class, able-bodiedness, sexuality, you know, gender expression piece is really important because you and I have the ability to play in lots of different forms and ways that other folks can't that's totally indexed on privilege. 
I think that's why I like thinking about play as subversiveness. Because, I mean, I definitely both personally and professionally like to use play as a way of undermining and, and attempting to dismantle hierarchies. Mm-hmm. So whether it's whiteness or class or patriarchy or whatever, you know, I feel like play is a really good way to deal with hostile audiences, but also people who don't necessarily have the vocabulary or the knowledge mm-hmm. to understand. I feel like I use punchlines and jokes all the time to expose power in ways that I think are quite subversive. I think also that's in the center of my wheelhouse about what it is about being a race, gender scholar and a communication expert Mm -hmm. that is like really, really fun for me. Whether it's in casual settings at the bar or when I get drive-by gendered in the airport or on an airplane and I can't escape. I mean, there are just like dozens of, of encounters that happen to me so frequently where play is the best way to address power and privilege, mm-hmm. you know, for those audience members who are not necessarily as verbally adroit as I am. But it has to be like a consensual. A, con, yeah, it has to be consensual. And I mean, I wonder how much. Sometimes I wonder, especially like how much what I'm saying to people and like how much I'm sharing is consensual. I mean, and that's part of play is like being aware that it might not. You know, like people might not. That's interesting. I find myself lately, I've been asking more, like, is this interesting to you? Should we just change topics? You know, just like taking the temperature of a conversation Mm -hmm. where there's intimacy and play possible. Like, is this what you want to be doing with your time? Like, should we, like, is this a consensual situation? Are you, are you enjoying this? You know, trying to take the temperature of what, Mm -hmm. you know, people are feeling about any kind of. Right conversation that we're having like that that's strange i've i guess i've thought about doing that and i've wondered you know personally if someone was really enjoying themselves but i like expect I them. all the time <laughs> <laughs> i kind of expect someone to just like straight up walk out or leave or no like, they don't not here they're so passive huh? and yeah no. uh-uh. and i mean i get like i know i am good enough now at reading audiences when i'm performing to know like all right i mean they've had their fill or, you know, I'll I'll tell a joke to see to gauge how like much the audience is okay with controversy uh-huh. or like controversial topics, sex, drugs, whatever. <laughs> um, and then I can like totally change my set or like go one of two routes depending on like how well someone reacts. But also like being able to tell, okay, so this person is not interested in what I'm saying. At all. It's tough, though, when it's, like, a situation where you are obligated to be with a person. Like, if you're a teacher, there's a contract that you're supposed to communicate a certain amount of information and knowledge. And and it's just, like, tough when... It's impossible. It's just tough when, like, they're not willing to go there with you, you know? Or, like, if you don't get anything back. To me, play is, like, an opportunity to get to know someone. But some people just, like, are not... I'm bored to play. And they're not capable. I mean, no. I'm surrounded by administrators who are completely uh, incapable. And not all of them, but many of them are incapable of play in ways that m- make the burden of our labor easier on us or more enjoyable or more relatable. I mean, it's like almost, <laughs> I can't even tell you how infrequently this kind of meta-cognitive, meta-emotional kind of content is just absent 
I would love to be like, how do you think this is? I've been here for almost 10 years. <laughs> and how do we think that that's going? Like, how, how, what's your bird's eye view of this sort of communication mm-hmm. landscape? And it's just very few people, I think, that can, zoom, that can either do that or can do it well and express whatever it is that they think that they see. And so, yeah, and I think that that also makes it less likely for people to play in workplaces, mm-hmm. even though they desperately need it there because they're dying from being overworked and grossly undercompensated and undervalued, especially if they're women, especially if they're folks of color, especially if they're queer. You know, I think that there's a necessity for play as survival in the workplace and in, in super conservative, especially super corporate cultures that can really extinguish like the life force out of people where they become bitter and angry and depressed and cut off and alienated and that alienates their labor. And I think that that is also a completely predictable product of capitalism. But I I can see that people have, you know, the desire for play and I see that. Yeah. And I, but I think a lot of it gets pushed into things that aren't like exactly productive, like spectating, being a spectator. Sports. Sports. Sports is like, would the number one thing that people want to talk about that's not related to work in a lot of workplaces here in Arkansas in particular, obviously that comes about from like the desire to connect with people, but it's all displaced onto these other agents. Like you have no agency in whether your team does well or not. And like who the players are, you don't even know them, but you're placing some amount of your like ability to let loose and have fun on this, like, Something that you have no part in, really. You don't have a part in it. You know, with watching TV shows and movies and having book clubs. I mean, a lot of those can be more intimate. It's just like a window. But it's not like... It's all based on something exterior to you. (laughs) I will say this. You know, you and I both have this in common, which is obviously why we're friends, where we will just go and take up a bunch of fun space in an unlikely location. And I was in Kansas City a couple weeks ago with my best friend, and we were in a bookstore clowning, and I was selfing myself with books um, written by authors that I know, and I was, you know, texting them and be like, here I am in Kansas City, your book's out on the front table, obviously they're reading your stuff from here. We're sort of clowning all over this bookstore, and we go to check out, and the guy who owns it is like, you seem to be having a good time. And yeah, and I had picked up this wonderful um, out-of-print Edward Gorey book because I love Edward Gorey because he's funny. And he's like, that goes for like 60 to $80 on Amazon. And I was like, well, if you're changing the price right now, I'm going to drop it right down on this fucking table and I'm going to walk out of here. And he's like, could not believe that I said that, but I was like clowning with him. And so we fell out laughing and they're like, what are you two doing today? And I was like, we are buying a bunch of books and then we're going to go have a drink. And then he pulled out a flask of whiskey from behind the counter. (laughs) And he's like, obviously we should start now. And I was like, hand it over. And so I just like knocked back a couple shots of whiskey at like three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday in Kansas City. And she says, well, don't leave me behind. And she knocks a couple sips back. And I say to the guys who are waiting behind us, I'm like, "Um, this is the whiskey portion of the checkout. So if you're not game, you might want to drop the books and run. And we're just totally clowning. And the guy who owns it, he's like, Los Lobos is playing tonight. You should come with us. And I'm like, we're going to go and um, have some day drinks down the street. You're welcome to join. And we just sort of like, you know, traipsed out. It was very merry pranksters. And so I like to disrupt space where there's a predictable narrative script about how people are supposed to interact with spontaneous fun. And I, and I feel like 
people are really hungry for that and just don't know how to initiate it. Oh, yeah, for But sure. you can draw them in in ways that are collaborative and consensual and productive sometimes and then sometimes yeah. just consumatory for the last. And if people play along, like, you can continue. And if they don't, like... Whatever. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's you over now. were joking and that they won't remember you a week from then and it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I think that there's just a lot of value in play as a source of major interpersonal connection. I think it's undervalued and misunderstood, and I think its absence is, the, is a symptom of alienation. And I don't know, I think we should be playing more. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.